That was about one year ago, October 2017, that we commemorated the 500-year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, that forest fire of Reformation was sparked by young Martin Luther. And as you might recall, Luther started off in the Catholic Church as a monk. His days in the monastery were filled with fasting, prayer, confession, pilgrimage. But he was spiritually depressed and had no joy of the Lord. He described in his own words, that Christ was not his comforter, but the jailer and hangman of his soul. But as he came to study the Bible, books like Psalms and Hebrews, Romans and Galatians, he found a different picture of the Savior than he had been taught. Being a Roman Catholic, Luther was taught that righteousness came through faith plus works. We all need righteousness to be accepted by God. But Catholics taught that such righteousness was earned through a system of merit. You have to perform meritorious works to be saved and keep all the traditions of the church and earn righteousness. But in studying scripture, Luther found a different gospel, the true gospel, which teaches that works or deeds of merit cannot save someone or even contribute to your salvation. And that's because we're all unrighteous before God, no matter what we do. And the real good news of the gospel is that we can be given the righteousness we need. And through the death and resurrection of Christ, God offers to make us perfectly righteous or to impute, to credit Christ's righteousness to our account that we might be forgiven and that we might be saved. And how do we receive such a gift? And the answer is by faith alone, not faith plus works, by faith alone. The gift of salvation comes to us by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from the works of the law or the traditions of the church. And when Luther came to this biblical understanding of the gospel, he felt a great weight lift off of his shoulders. He describes himself as if he was born again, he said, and indeed he was as he came to a true understanding of the gospel. But at first, Luther remained in the Catholic church. His desire was to reform the church from within. The more he studied the Bible, though, the more he saw all these discrepancies between what the Bible said and what the Catholic Church taught. These could not be ignored. He had to say something. Top of the list was the selling of indulgences. This was led by the Pope himself, who was trying to raise money to rebuild St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And so indulgences were being sold through the church. You basically could buy a piece of paper that would grant you or a loved one absolution from any sins committed, past, present, even future. And this is just one example of the many unbiblical and corrupt practices of the Catholic Church at the time. And Luther had no choice but to protest these practices, to say something about them. And he did so by nailing his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg in 1517. Again, his desire was still to reform the church from within, but the powers that be were not very happy about his protest. What do you know? They didn't like being exposed as hypocrites and corrupt. So in time, Luther was excommunicated from the Catholic Church, and a secret plot was hatched to arrest him and kill him. But before that could happen, a man named Frederick III kidnapped Luther in a good way and took him to his castle for safekeeping. He he hid him out. 
And there Luther would remain in hiding. During this time, Luther was mostly alone, and he spent his days studying the Bible, writing to protest the Catholic Church, and translating, for the first time ever, the Bible, the New Testament, into German, the language of the people of the land. His teaching and writing would go on to awaken countless others to the true gospel and to the corruption and false teaching found in the Catholic Church. It became clear in time that internal reform was not possible, and so the Protestant Reformation was born. Now, a lot more can be said about Luther's role in the Reformation. The question, though, is why am I saying any of this? Didn't we learn all this and more a year ago? Well, we did, but there's one part of this story that I bet most of you don't know. See, while Luther was hiding out in Wartburg Castle there in Germany, he's translating the New Testament. It was at this time that he came to make some interesting comments about the book of James in the Bible. And we just so happen to be studying James. So what did Luther have to say about the book of James? Well, in his preface to the first edition of his German New Testament, Luther said James, famously, he said it was an epistle of straw. An epistle of straw. Basically, he's taken some shots at James. In the writings of Paul, that's like gold and silver. James, it's mere straw. Luther wasn't removing James from the New Testament, but he had some issues with James. What kind of issues? Well, once you see for yourself, you can open your Bible to James chapter 2. James chapter 2, where we're at right now. And it's true, James doesn't give a detailed theological explanation of the gospel. But the primary problem Luther had with James swirled around some verses in James 2 that seemed to contradict Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone. And keep in mind, that was the whole issue that started the Protestant Reformation, justification by faith alone. How are we justified or made righteous before God? The Catholics taught justification by faith plus works. You have to do these things to be saved. You have to contribute to your justification with these deeds of merit. But to the contrary, Luther discovered how Scripture so clearly teaches otherwise that we're, we're justified as a gift apart from any works, and we receive it in Christ just by faith. Justification by faith alone. It's so clear, like Romans 3.28, for example, where Paul says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It's clear there. It's clear elsewhere. But that being said, what do you make about some of these verses in James chapter 2? We've exposed this problem before, but one more time, James 2 verse 21, where James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? In verse 24, he says, So you see that a man is justified by works, and not by faith alone. Seems to say like the exact opposite. Paul so clearly says we are justified by faith apart from works. And James says we are justified by works and not by faith alone. I trust you can see how this is a big deal. First, you have an authority of scripture issue, where if you can prove a real contradiction in the Bible, 
it demolishes the authority of the Bible because if it really came from God, it, it can't err or contradict. And you also have a reformation issue. If Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone is wrong, that's what led Martin Luther to break away from the Catholic Church. So do we have it wrong too? James here seems to support what the Catholics were saying. So was Luther mistaken? Is the Reformation just a big mistake? Should we all rejoin the Catholic Church? So what's the deal here? Luther, young Luther, could not reconcile the two. In his youth, he could not understand how James and Paul fit together. He saw no way to harmonize them at first. It didn't lead him to cut James out of the Bible, but that's why he made some comments about it as an epistle of straw. Basically said Paul's epistles were so much clearer and more valuable than James. Now in this, Luther was wrong, and it surely revealed and exposed his youthfulness. To be fair, though, you know, today, when questions like this come up today, what do you do? You immediately turn to the hundreds of years of commentaries we have and writings where great theologians have already wrestled through all these issues. So you kind of cheat and just look up what someone else has said. But Luther was alone in a castle with nothing but ancient Greek manuscripts. That's all he had. And it's amazing he came up with what he did. He was a real trailblazer. But as with most trailblazers, they're prone to overreaction. All of his guns were pointed at the Catholic Church and their teaching of salvation by faith plus works. So anything that seemed to support that, he was going to take issue with. Now, the good news is that in all of the later editions of his German New Testament, Luther himself removed his comments against James. As he got a little bit older, he came to better understand how Paul and James are not theological enemies, but friends. And that's good. That's good for him. But it still leaves us with a bunch of questions. You know, Luther was not the first person to recognize the apparent contradiction between James and Paul. And so we today still ask the question, what do they mean? What does Paul mean when he says justification is by faith alone and not by works? And then what does James mean when he says justification is by works and not by faith alone? Can these possibly be reconciled? Is there a real answer or are we left with a real contradiction in the Bible? And then on top of that, this isn't just some academic exercise. We really want to know what can we learn about the role of faith and works in our lives, in our salvation, that we can live rightly before God and know the true gospel? How can we apply the teaching of James and Paul to our lives? I don't know about you, but I would want answers to all of these questions. And again, we're facing these questions because we're going through the epistle of James. And now we've happened upon the passage that troubled young Luther, James 2 verses 20 through 26. And that's, that's the trouble. When you preach through the Bible, verse by verse, you just can't skip over the hard stuff. You face it, and what are you going to do? We could, you know, brush these questions all aside, or we could spend some time and, and grapple with them and try and find answers. And, well, as you know, we're doing the latter. Last week, we covered the first passage, verses 14 through 19. And there, James made the point that faith without works is useless. Faith saves, 
but works reveal whether your faith is genuine or not. And there is such a thing as a false faith, and that's most clearly evidenced by a lack of works or righteousness in a person's life. That's understandable enough, but it's this second passage, verses 20 through 26, that's a little more challenging because James now uses terms like justified. He's using the same term that Paul used now. And James also uses Abraham as an example of justification by works. And that's troubling because Paul used Abraham as an example of justification by faith. So now there's like a tug of war over Abraham. Like whose side is Father Abraham on? Well, in reality, he's on both sides, James and Paul. And they're on the same side too. And it's going to be our goal to show you, as one commentator put, I cheat too. Now, James and Paul, they're not enemies standing face to face opposing one another, but they're allies standing back to back supporting one another. They give not a contradictory but complementary understanding of justification and salvation. It's one thing to say that, but you, you need to see that for yourself. I imagine you want to see that for yourself, and so we're going to do that now. We're going to need to hear from both of these men to hear from themselves what they believe. Let them speak for themselves. And along these lines, this morning, first, we're going to hear from the Apostle Paul. Let him speak for himself as to what he means by his gospel justification by faith alone. What does he mean? And then we'll come back later and listen to James. So for now, turn over to Galatians chapter 1. This is where we'll be, so just turn over there. A lot of verses, but Galatians chapter 1 is where to go. Galatians was one of, if not the first letter Paul wrote. It formed his defense of his apostleship and his gospel. Galatians is all about the true gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And Paul comes out swinging chapter 1, saying that if anyone, even an angel, should preach a contrary gospel, he's accursed. Getting the gospel right or wrong, it's an eternally significant issue. And so in the rest of the letter, Paul proceeds to lay out the gospel. As a side note, it's not surprising to learn that Galatians was Martin Luther's favorite book of the Bible. He said he was wedded to it. It was so influential in his understanding and his teaching of justification by faith alone. Others have said that Galatians was like the pebble from the brook, which, like David, Luther took to meet the papal giant and smite him on the forehead. So if we're going to try and understand the Apostle Paul's teaching on justification by faith alone, which started the Protestant Reformation, well, there's no question that we need to study Galatians. If you've never done it before, it's like peering into the mind of the Apostle Paul, one of the most autobiographical books he wrote. A false gospel of faith plus works was starting to infect the Galatian churches, and that's why Paul writes to refute that gospel and defend the true gospel of justification by faith alone. It's a gospel of grace, grace alone and faith alone. So let's look about it, or rather look at it and learn about it. Okay, chapter 1, verse 11. 
He says, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so to start, Paul claims that his gospel did not have a human origin. He didn't make it up, but he received it via direct revelation from the Lord himself. Indeed, Paul experienced this grace firsthand in his own conversion, as we read earlier this morning. He wasn't even looking for Jesus when Christ found him and changed him. And so he continues in verse 13. He says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So he's recalling here his conversion experience before his name was Saul, and he was the chief persecutor of this new Christian church. You probably heard stories in World War II. There were some Nazi Jew hunters where they made it their profession to find and hunt and arrest hiding Jews. In an ironic twist of fate, long before then, Saul, as a Jew, he was a Christian hunter. And he was number one. He was finding them, arresting them, and many of them would be killed. But God had different plans for Saul. Verse 15 references God's sovereign election of Saul. He was set apart from birth. And then at the right time, God called Saul to himself. And he says, not by works. He was called by grace. Paul's life as a Jew was filled with works. He had plenty of works to his name. These were religious works. He kept the law of Moses. He kept the traditions, but all that did nothing to make him right with God. Such legalism only further drove him away, and instead it was God's grace and his grace alone that changed Paul. Christ was revealed to him, and then he was commissioned to go preach Christ to the Gentiles. It's such a radical turnaround the more you study it and think about it. It's like today, if you know, after 9-11, Osama bin Laden converted to Christ and started preaching Jesus. It's that radical uh, of a, a change was Saul's conversion. His life was completely changed by God's grace. He was temporarily blinded when Christ visited him. But his eyes were open for the first time. He beheld Christ as Lord and Savior, and he immediately gave up his life to go preach the gospel. But what's so interesting, though, he's converted his first move was not to go join the mother church in Jerusalem. He didn't join the other apostles at first. He kind of went his own way. He served the Lord for three years without contact with the other apostles. Isn't that interesting? Eventually, though, 
He says in verse 18, three years later, he says, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So after three years, finally, Paul meets some of the official apostles, notably Peter, that's Cephas, and James. And this James, by the way, that's James, the half-brother of the Lord. It's the same James who wrote James. And so they meet. It's where they become acquainted. There's no conflict at that point. They seem to be on the same page. They have an initial brief meeting, but all ends well. At the same time, though, the Jews in Jerusalem, now they wanted to kill Paul. I mean, he was the guy that used to be wanting to kill the Christians, but now they want to kill Paul. So he must flee. So he says in verse 21, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. So after that quick visit with the apostles, Paul went back to his hometown of Tarsus, then down to Antioch. He became the pastor there for some time. Then Barnabas joins him, and together the two of them go on a missionary journey, the first missionary journey. And in all, 14 more years of ministry elapse after this point, where Paul is doing his thing. He's preaching the gospel. He's making disciples. He's planning churches. And he's doing this all independent of like the main apostles, the official guys. He's kind of doing his own thing. But the time came when he needed to formally align himself with the apostles. And so we learn about this in chapter 2. So look at Galatians 2. It's time to go to Jerusalem. It says in verse 1, Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel, which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now just think about this for a moment. It's really interesting. Paul is almost surely talking about his visit to Jerusalem for what's called the Jerusalem Council. It's recorded in Acts 15. And the issue there was Gentile salvation, the inclusion of all these new Gentiles in the church, which started, as you know, all Jewish. And there were a group of Jewish legalists known as the Judaizers, and they were teaching salvation by faith plus works. These are Jews who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they taught that to be saved, you still had to keep the law of Moses. And they were willing to accept Gentiles into the church, but only if they got circumcised and kept the full law of Moses. But that's not what the apostles were teaching. That's not what Paul was teaching. And Paul himself used to be the most radical Jew, and he zealously adhered to the law of Moses. But he found liberty in Christ from the law of Moses. He's found salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And in his ministry to the Gentiles, his message wasn't, hey, get circumcised, keep the law of Moses, and be saved. 
No, his message always was just repent and believe in Jesus. But what if Paul was wrong? That's what Paul had been preaching these past 17 years after his conversion. But what if he had things wrong? Because remember, Paul was not one of the original disciples of Jesus. He wasn't among the original 12, or even the 70, or even the 500, or even the first 5,000. He was not even close to one of the first disciples. He never walked with Jesus on earth. And Paul was saved, and then he ministered completely independently of the main apostles. Isn't that interesting? But how did anyone know if he was the real deal? What if Paul was the false teacher? What if his gospel of grace that he learned from the Lord himself was wrong? I mean, who's to say these Judaizers weren't right? What if salvation really was by faith and works? The original apostles were the authority. They walked with Jesus. They beheld his resurrection. Christ personally commissioned them to be his representatives. So it was time for Paul to go meet with the apostles. He says in verse 2, for fear that he might have been running in vain. Meaning, did he just waste the previous 17 years of ministering the gospel for nothing because he had the wrong gospel? You know, this gospel of grace alone and faith alone. Did he just waste his time? It was time to go meet with the apostles. And what did he find? Look down at verse 6, Galatians 2. He says, but those are from those who were of high reputation... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. He says, well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. He's talking about the apostles here. And what he means is by saying they contributed nothing, it means they didn't teach him anything. They didn't fill him in. They didn't have to correct him. They were in full agreement. It means that the Lord really did reveal to Paul the true gospel. And he really did see the risen Lord. Paul was independently, for almost two decades, preaching the exact same gospel, same Lord, same Christ, same truth as those who walked with Jesus. Isn't that profound to think about? And so the apostles gladly affirmed Paul and his ministry and his gospel to the Gentiles. Verse 7, he says, But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. Verse 9, and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. And so the apostles, after this meeting, they recognized Paul had the true gospel. They affirmed his ministry and off he went. But you know what's extra special about that passage we just read? Do you see it? Do you see who Paul mentions by name? He says, James and Peter and John. But look, there's James. There's James again. It's the same James, half-brother of the Lord, the same James who wrote James. So just think about this. 
By this time, the time of the Jerusalem Council in AD 50, something like that, that's when Paul meets with James. He meets with the apostles. At that time, James had already written James. The letter was out there. And so just put this all together. These two guys meet, James, Paul. They're meeting in person. And they're discussing in detail what they believe. And specifically, what's like the main issue they're talking about? Justification. You know, all these Gentiles, how are they justified? Is it by faith alone or faith plus works? Do people need to keep the law of Moses to be saved? And the conclusion they both came to was no. They came to full agreement there in that Jerusalem council that justification was by faith alone. And these Gentiles, they were saved the same way the Jews were saved. It's by faith alone in Christ. And so James affirmed Paul. Paul agreed with James. There is no conflict or contradiction between them. For they were preaching the same true gospel. There's only one good news message. That we can be justified or made righteous by God and his grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. Apart from the works of the law. And so already from this, you've learned something. If anyone ever claims that James and Paul were theological enemies, that they had differing views of salvation or justification, they don't know their Bible very well. Because if Paul and James really were theological enemies, no one told them. Right? They believed and confirmed in person they were on the same side. They had the same view of salvation and justification, and they were preaching the same message. Now, to be sure, there were some people out there preaching a different gospel. Talked about those Judaizers. You know, the Jerusalem council was, was meant to deal with them. And by the way, it was led by James. He led the Jerusalem council, which refuted and rejected their gospel of faith plus works. And then a few years later, Paul writes Galatians. He's writing this just a few years after that meeting with James, the Jerusalem council. And he is likewise refuting that same false gospel of faith plus works. Strong action needed to be taken against these Judaizers because they were, a, they were small, but they were a forceful and influential group. These legalists, they strongly guarded the law of Moses and they intimidated people to kind of bow down to their self-righteousness, kind of like the Pharisees. They're a very intimidating group. In fact, their intimidation was so strong that one time, even the apostle Peter was carried away by them. Did you know that? Let's keep reading. It's very interesting. Look at verse 11. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. And so what happens is after that Jerusalem council, Paul returns to Antioch. Peter eventually joins him. And things are great. They experience that the unity of the church where Jew and Gentile are one in Christ. Things are good. 
But then these false brethren come in, claiming to come from James. That was a lie. And they started pressuring all these Jewish Christians to separate from the Gentiles because they weren't keeping the law of Moses. And in a moment of weakness, Peter and Barnabas and many other Jews, they were carried away by their hypocrisy. And they, so they stopped taking their meals with the Gentiles. But Paul was not carried away. And he had to stand up and say something for the truth. And it's not like Peter was denying the gospel, but by his actions, they sure were inconsistent with the gospel. And so even Peter needed to be corrected. And Paul says in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Here's where all we studied about the law of Moses comes back into play. You know, in the church, the new covenant has been replaced or has replaced rather that the old covenant, the law of Moses has been fulfilled by Christ and therefore replaced by the law of Christ. And so the point is you had all these Jews like Peter and Paul and in Christ, they were no longer living like Jews. All the traditions and ceremonies were no longer binding on them. And so the point that Paul makes is if Jews were now free from bondage to the old covenant, to the law of Moses, why should Gentiles be bound to the old covenant, the law of Moses, like the Judaizers taught? And you see how that's inconsistent. And it goes against the central gospel message, which says that we're justified. We're made right with God. Apart from all that stuff, all those rules and traditions, they don't make us right with God. It's not by works, not by law keeping of any kind, but Jews and Gentiles, they're justified in the exact same way, which is by faith alone. It's the only way. And so Paul adds, look at verse 15. He says, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And so here it is now. Here Paul gets to the very heart of his gospel, which he learned from the Lord directly. And that was affirmed by all the apostles, including James. He says in verse 16, a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Does it get any simpler than that or more straightforward? It's very clear. We're not made right with God by law keeping, but by faith alone. And if it's not clear, he repeats himself and he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. The law cannot justify. Legalism can't save anyone. These Jewish legalists were trying to earn God's favor by keeping his laws. And they just thought, you know, if we act righteous, we do these things, God will accept us. 
And that's how natural man thinks, which is why every other world religion is based on a system of works righteousness or self-righteousness. But the problem is that we're all already guilty before God and we're unrighteous from birth. God has given us his law, but no one can keep his laws perfectly. I mean, try as you might to do all that it says, you'll find yourself just violating over and over again. There's even a day go by where you don't get angry or lust or face greed or anxiety or malice in your heart. You see, before God, we're guilty. We're just guilty. And doing good works, doing good things, it doesn't change that fact. We're just guilty. You know, 1510, before the Reformation, Martin Luther went on a pilgrimage to Rome. He wanted to see the holy city. And one of his stops was the Scala Sancta. That means holy stairs. And according to tradition, this was a set of 28 stairs that said to belong to Pontius Pilate in the Praetorium, that these were the same stairs that Jesus ascended during his trial. And the Catholic Church taught that if you made pilgrimage to Rome, and you went up these 28 stairs on your knees, and you said that one Hail Father prayer every stair, that at the end you would, be, you would gain an indulgence worth 1,000 years in purgatory. And so Luther wanted to free his grandfather, who was in purgatory, And this was when he was still a Catholic monk. So he went and he went up the stairs. And he recalls later how halfway through the words of Paul came to his mind. The just shall live by faith. But he kept going. He made it to the top. He stood up and he looked back and he said, who knows? So what he said, who knows? Meaning, you know, who knows if this just did anything before God? And he later learned it doesn't. Deeds of merit or penance, they don't bring us any closer to God because we're unrighteous from step one. From the very beginning, we're unrighteous. God's laws, they're good and they're holy and they reveal his holy standard. But the problem is with us, our sinful hearts on the inside, our hearts are wicked and corrupt and therefore they will only violate God and his ways. So what we really need is forgiveness and then a brand new heart, a new nature. That's what we need, but the law can't give that to us. But thankfully God can. And that's why he sent Christ. That's the good news of the gospel that Jesus came to do for us and to give to us what the law could not do. Jesus came to give us new hearts, to make us into a new people and to offer us total forgiveness, and even perfect righteousness apart from the law. And Paul testifies, look at verse 19, still in Galatians 2. He says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. For those who are united to Christ by faith, we've died to sin. We're alive to God. Christ lives in us. 
And his righteousness is now our righteousness. That's the only way you can be made right with God. It's the gospel of grace. And keep in mind, he says in verse 21, if righteousness really comes through the law, why did Jesus need to come and die? If you could really be saved by good works and deeds of merit, you know, helping enough old ladies cross the street, why did Jesus need to come and die? Just save yourself. But he had to come and die because it was the only way to justify lost sinners. And the righteousness we need doesn't come through the law. It only comes through Christ. And we access it as a free gift purely by faith in him. This is Paul's gospel, which is James's gospel. It's the gospel of the Lord himself. It's the only gospel, the only good news message of salvation. Well, Paul here in Galatians, he only continues to elaborate on the details of this gospel as you keep reading. But you find this same teaching repeated over and over. It's just so clear everywhere you turn. For example, you don't have to turn there, but in Romans 3, he says it there too. Romans 3.21, he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. He says all have sinned. Jew, Gentile, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They've fallen short of God's righteousness. But the good news is that all Jew and Gentile can be justified or made righteous before God by grace, through faith. In Christ, apart from the works of the law. It's just so clear. Likewise, in Philippians, he makes it equally clear. Now, after confessing that Paul used to be one of those guys who put confidence in himself and was trying to work his way into heaven, he learned the truth. He says in Philippians 3, 8, and 9, he says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. He says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It's just so clear everywhere you turn. He didn't have a righteousness that came by keeping the law. He used to think that got him nowhere, but he found Christ and he found the righteousness that comes from God. It's a free gift through faith in Christ, apart from the law. This is the gospel, the true gospel, the only message that can save. It's the truth of scripture, which Martin Luther himself rightly rediscovered. Is it clear? It is. There's no mistaking it in God's word. And so today we've heard from the apostle Paul. I trust many of you 
hey, you knew all that. You've heard that before. But here again, it's so necessary to lay it out. We need to make sure we have it right, that we're not mistaken. We need to make sure that we're not the ones running in vain. I don't want to run in vain. Do you? Do you, do you have things right? But we've learned indeed, by God's grace, we do. And scripture is so clear. Now, I know some of you might still be a little frustrated because we still actually haven't said what James means. And we are actually studying James here, although you wouldn't know that today. But as a final step next week, we will finally revisit James and find out what he means. As I said before, we've got to hear from both of these guys if we're going to do our due diligence. And today we've heard from Paul. But I'll tell you what, you should already gain a great confidence in the Bible itself from what we've studied today. That, look, it is divinely inspired. It does not err or contradict. We've already glimpsed how James and Paul, they met in person. And they didn't contradict in person. They didn't have any conflict in person. They were united in the gospel in person. You can expect the same from their writings. And indeed, it's true. We'll find out next time how James himself does not contradict, but complements everything we learned today from Paul. For now, though, I want to make sure that you let what we've learned sink in a little bit. Even if you've heard it all before, I just want to make sure you never take for granted the gospel and the glory of this gospel that came from the Lord that was lost for so long in a sense, but Martin Luther found, and we are of that heritage, back to the Lord himself. You don't take it for granted or, or treat this as a mere intellectual exercise, but you take it to the heart and really respond in worship. The subtle error of legalism can still encroach upon churches today, and it can carry people away into hypocrisy, kind of like Peter. It can make you lose sight of the gospel of grace. For instance, if you ever sinned against God, you felt really bad, so you repented, and then not too long later, you do it again, and then again, and then and that cycle repeats, and you feel bad, you repent, but then you fall again, you fall again. Has that ever happened to you? The answer to that question is yes, if you're a Christian, that has happened to you. It's called a wrestling match with sin. We're still of the flesh, it happens. But I've seen many wrongly respond to such a wrestling match with sin by legalism, by resorting to legalism. I think it's easy for some people, they default to just, they try and justify themselves and kind of make it up to God to make themselves feel a little bit better. Lord, I'm sorry. I blew it again. I did that thing again. I feel so bad. You must hate me, but let me make it up to you. Look, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to commit to church, even Sunday nights. That's when you know you've really done bad, right? I'm going to read my Bible every day now. I'm going to pray. I memorize a verse or two. And look, these are all good things that may actually help you in your war against sin. That's true. But if you find yourself doing these things or anything to appease God, to diffuse his wrath, to try and regain your righteousness, uh, you've forgotten the gospel. You have fallen into hypocrisy like Peter. These things don't make you righteous and they don't restore an ounce of righteousness in your account. 
Because there's only one source of righteousness, and it's Christ. And we access that by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from any works. This doesn't give us a license to sin. The true believer is not going to dwell in unrepentant sin. We learned that very well from James last week. How we live still matters a lot. But the gospel of grace does mean that even when we sin and we fall, we're not kicked out of the kingdom. We don't come under God's wrath. God doesn't hate us. If you're in Christ by faith, you're God's child now. And look, there may be times of discipline, but God's smile never departs from you. His love never leaves you. You're his beloved possession. Wrath. And what wrath? Jesus drank the full cup of wrath for us. There's there's nothing left. That's what happens when you're justified in Christ. There's, There's nothing left. And we're justified now, not because we are righteous. We are very unrighteous. But being united to Christ by faith, God views us through him. And so in Christ, we are perfectly righteous and forgiven. This is how we're saved and how continually cleansed and restored to God. And again, these truths, they don't make us say, hey, great, look at all the sin I can enjoy now because I'm just continually forgiven. Great. No, the the true believer knows and will respond and say just, wow, this is amazing grace. We're going to sing songs. This is amazing grace. Look what God's grace has done for a sinner such as me. And he or she is going to happily just lay down their life in worship and just offer up their life to this God who did so much for them by grace. You know, if you don't know this Christ, if you don't know this gospel, you've been running in vain. And so I'd urge you to, to turn to him now to repent and believe the gospel. And for all of us to dwell on these truths, dwell on the hope of the gospel of grace. And feel like Luther, that the burden of sin lifted off your shoulders because Christ has taken it. Receive his peace and joy and then rightly respond. Even if you hear this a million times, rightly respond. Giving thanks with your heart, giving praise with your mouth, and giving glory with your life. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, we do give you glory now and praise and thanksgiving for this gospel, the gospel of grace, the only gospel, Lord, by which we can be saved, for we confess we are unrighteous. And though sometimes we try as we might to earn some favor or make things up to you, it's a futile thing. We are just justly condemned, and we can never be perfect, but we thank you even more so, knowing this because of what you've done to save us, to redeem us, to make us your children, and sending Christ to die, to rise, and now to offer life, forgiveness, and his own righteousness that can be given to us. What can we do for such a gift, Lord? How do we pay for it? We can't. It's unearned. It's grace. But you offer it to us simply by faith as we believe, as we surrender our lives to Christ as Lord and Savior we will be justified. This is good news, and it beckons us to live now rightly and to rejoice and to offer up our very lives on the altar 
just to serve you in love. And I pray we do this now in our response. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.